Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Alison, how are you? Hey, Andrea. Yeah, I'm really good today. Thank you. I'm down with um, the heater next to me and the light on because it's got all cold outside. So I drew the curtains, the sun's gone down and I'm kind of cozying up and uh, making sure I'm cozy and comfortable for our chat. How about you? Oh, that's that's funny. I don't know. You said the sun is going down and I was thinking my sun's about to come up. So you're sending it over this way. Thank you very much. We can't have it at the same time. Um, I'm good. I'm good, actually. It's been cold here. It snowed a couple times, and Mm -hmm. that was really fun. The kids were outside. Literally, they were standing at the door in the morning in the dark, getting their gear on, waiting until a little bit of light came up, and then they were out the door for hours, hours, and they would come inside sopping wet and like purple with cold Mm. and I would Mm. you know fill them up with hot food they'd sit downstairs and read by the fire and just like roast and toast themselves with their clothes hanging up we have a a, literally a pole from our old closet in our old house when we were Mm. moving our friends who bought our house said oh we're gonna rip that closet out so you don't need to leave anything in it so we took the pole out of it and we (laughs) use it to dry our clothes on (laughs) nice so yeah they sit there dry their clothes and then they put them back on and go back out (laughs) until it's dark again I'm it's such fun snow when you're a little one isn't it it's just magical yeah all those freezing puddles on the floor by the door so magical (laughs) yeah it's true it's true so have you had breakfast I have actually lucky lucky me um Mm. I just had a breakfast burrito so um I had Mm. I don't know if anybody has made the cottage potatoes from nourishing traditions but that recipe is literally my kids favorite way that I I ever make potatoes ever and they ask for them all Mm. the time so I had so what is it um basically you peel and dice the potatoes and then Mm. you toss them with some fat so I used Mm. turkey fat from when we roasted that turkey for Thanksgiving and Mm. um uh, some butter so toast toss it in those and then pour it onto a sheet pan and um, bake it in the oven until they're as crispy as you like so they're delicious nice. and if you don't like them crispy then just cook it a little bit less so they're kind of soft and so I had some in the fridge I just reheated those on the stove and I used two of our preserved eggs woohoo uh-huh. that those if, if it weren't for those glassed eggs, we wouldn't have had eggs in yeah. weeks. <laughs> and they tasted, they didn't, you couldn't taste the kind of the... No. I remember when you made them, you said it might kind of go into them and they were better yeah. used for baking, but it sounds like you <clears throat> well, can people, use Well, people, do you remember how I said, I can't remember if I told you this, Allison, how I said that when I eat eggs from the store, I like, I can tolerate them baked in something, but if I eat it by itself, there's this weird aftertaste in factory eggs that I can't hack. And mm-hmm. I thought for years that I didn't like eggs because of that. Mm. Um, but our chickens don't have them. And honestly, I've eaten farm eggs from other farms that have given me that same aftertaste. And I'm mm. not kidding you. I think it's the soy. That's the only thing I can think of that's different right. is that our feed doesn't have soy in it. But mm. Um, mm. 
there is no aftertaste, none whatsoever. So I don't know if it's because the eggs, the way the eggs are raised, or if it's just that they've only been sitting there since July. So maybe they're not as old as some, some maybe some people are using like two-year-old eggs or something. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, I'm glad you're getting to use yeah. them. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. The potatoes sound nice. Immediately, I think with those potatoes, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to put some rosemary on, put some cracked red pepper on them, mm. you oh, know, salt, yep, pepper, yep, all exactly. the different spices and herbs you could put on them yeah. to just When I pull the pan out of the oven, each time. the kids are there with mm. forks. Like they don't even wait until I get them off the pan. They're like vultures hovering and they instantly start picking them off the pan and they're like that's so good so I just rolled all some of that up into a tortilla with some um sour cream and some of our pickled jalapenos so good mm-hmm. yeah so that was my delicious. breakfast and you had lunch wow. so what'd you have yeah yeah we did um I had um something from the freezer actually which mm. um this week's been really crazy busy so it, I was really pleased to be able to just dip into the freezer last night and, and yes. leave something out to frosting. It Amen. was um, <laughs> a mutton stew. We got some sheep, I think I mentioned on one of our episodes mm. at the end of last year mm-hmm. from Flavio the farmer that was completely grass fed and I just got tons of it. And so I'd made a stew, I think a couple of weeks ago, and um, I, I didn't know which stew it was because I make a lot of them and put them in there I ne- and I never remember which one I'm getting out. <laughs> But I remembered when I tasted the ginger because in this one, um, someone on Instagram gave me the idea of using the the grated ginger from the bottom of my ginger bug and just putting it in food. And so I had this mutton stew going and I put in warming spices anyway, some allspice and some cumin. And I thought, well, let's put this ginger in like this. And um, I could taste the ginger in it at lunchtime. So I knew it was that one. And um, so we had that. I chopped up some beet greens beforehand because there wasn't quite enough green in it. Yeah. And so I just do it simple where I chop up the beet greens and I boil them and then I drain the water out and then I put the stew in the same pan on top of them and heat it up. So I was just using one pan for the whole thing. So there's less washing up, which Rob yes. likes. And um, so we had the, the juice was kind of red from the red of the chard from the beet green and the stems are red. So all the juice in the stew went red. From the, huh? from the chard and we had some milk kefir spelt bread that one's still going I'm making a lot of those with lard we rendered some lard um two days ago so beautiful fresh rendered lard spread over the top of it Ooh, and the usual yeah. sauerkraut and fermented garlic and um, that kind of thing mm. so yeah absolutely delicious that sounds really perfect and easy what'd you drink it took me like I didn't I didn't drink anything actually all the beer's gone I'm going to make another beer soon. But we've been, like I said, I've been so busy. I haven't had a chance. But um, hopefully next week we'll be making some more beer. After lunch, I had a chicory. I like to drink um, chicory, which um, tastes a bit like coffee. It's been used as a coffee substitute. It was used as a coffee substitute in um, the war here in Italy because it grows everywhere. And it's the root toasted. And I've got little kind of broken up bits of root toasted and I um, put them in my teapot and um, put boiling water and I've got some orange rind which um, is dehydrated and so I put a couple of bits of orange rind in with it it goes really really well Mm. leave it for a couple of minutes and then after lunch I I had myself a cup of that it's delicious yeah I don't drink coffee Rob does but um, it's kind of my my equivalent to his his 
his coffee is a bit strange because he roasts the beans himself and it's much lighter. But mm-hmm. um, it's my equivalent to his coffee. I have chicory and he has coffee. Yeah, I, lo- I love chicory. I don't know if um, our listeners are like drinking that, but it's really good. Yeah, I always agree. thought it sounded really gross. You know, like, ah, I don't know about that, but it's actually quite good. So I and think it's-, it's the best coffee substitute. I've tried dandelion I agree. Uh, yeah, in England. I agree. And orzo and barley is a really big thing here. So companies roast the barley and then mm. powder it. So it looks like, um, you know, that kind of normal instant coffee you get, kind of like that. And you just pour boiling water on it. Um, but it, it's just not as nice as the chicken. You know, Roasted barley, uh, unless that's a modern invention, but um, I, you know how we talk about trash food? (laughs) I Mm. feel like we need to have another category called famine food. So Mm. weird food that came out of, you know, like you said, the, you know, acorn flour or, you know, chestnut flour or whatever. Um, Things that came out of times of extreme duress and hardship Mm. that like here in the States, we have a lot of dishes that are from the great depression that are like mm-hmm. so weird, but good. But then when you look at it, it's like, oh, it's because they had like, you know, two ingredients, <laughs> they had no food. So they were okay. just, you know, scrapping things together. Um, yeah. It's kind of interesting what people come up with during those crazy war times and things like that. You know, that actually links into one of the books that I'm going to talk about. Later oh, good. On. So I'll, I'll oh. hold that point in my head. And when we get to that book, I shall um, talk What's about it. What's the problem more. here, Alison? We're here to talk about books and, and I have my <laughs> yeah, book list. first but episode I, of the new year. I know by the time you finish reading your list, I'm going to have added all your books to my list too. And I'm like, oh, I'll have to read those too. <laughs> it's, this is not going to end well for me. <laughs> mm. Oh, it never does. That book poll never does end well, does it? It's just endless. Really. Yes. Before we start, though, I want to say thank you to the patrons. It's been getting, um, getting. I, I don't know. It's just, just really fun having patrons on the podcast. And first of all, we super appreciate that because it is enabling, you know, Allison and I to do things. Um, and it's fun putting that content up and thinking of things to put on the patron private podcast feed so if you are a patron of the podcast go check out that private feed alice posted the a song that rob wrote and performed called (laughs) who are you calling pigs and i love that song my kids love that song so um go check it out it's on that on that feed okay um today we're talking about books and alice a lot of these books for me are going to connect to the challenge that we put out for everybody. So go check out the ancestral, the ancestral kitchen challenge. So you can see what we're challenging you to do in your kitchen. And it was this challenge. Um, Allison, the, the, the thing that Mm -hmm. sparked the thought in me to, for us to do this challenge was that I'm a huge fan and I'm a patron of the Literary Life mm. podcast and I love that show. And they do a reading challenge every year where they give you like, you know, 15 to 20 categories of books to read. And so mm-hmm. <clears throat> it has really broadened my reading because I had never actually read any Greek tragedies on my own. Mm. Um mm. And that was a category one year was read a Greek tragedy, you know? So, um, 
I thought, man, I wish there was a challenge for the kitchen because that would really push me to expand it. And then I was like, well, I guess I can make one. <laughs> Let's make one. <laughs> so, so then Allison, that was really fun. You and me on the phone, just coming up with ideas like, what if we did this? What if we do that? So these books will support your challenge if you're trying to work your way through the challenge. I, some of mine are chosen specifically because they're going to help me tackle categories on the challenge so yeah um, so we'll link the challenge details in the show notes of the podcast yeah, yeah. and um they're on our instagram as well so you could pop over to either of our accounts yeah. and see the details there but it's something that that we hope will um push both of us as mm-hmm. well as mm-hmm. you forward ancestrally in your kitchens this year by taking some things and going yeah okay mm-hmm. i fancy having a go at that and um having kind of sharing and community along the way as you do so yeah and having a year to do it, you know, instead of being yeah. like, do it this month and then this month is crazy. So you never get it done. So you're like, I guess I will never do it in my life. <laughs> so let's That's talk cool. about books, Allison, the books that we yeah, want so to work on in um, 2022. I have six on my list. I know you've got more than me. Um, oh dear. But maybe I think I might talk, uh, I might talk longer about mine. Um, do you want to go first or shall I? Um. Well, why don't, why don't we break it up like this? You tell yeah, us about okay. a book, then I'll read a couple titles. Then you tell us about okay. a book. <laughs> How's that sound? Yeah. Okay. That sounds like a good deal. Okay. okay. So my first book that I have bought, but I haven't started yet, is called Eating to Extinction. And it's oh, yes. by um, Dan Saladino. So first of all, Dan Saladino, I um, have a great deal of admiration for. He is a journalist, a food journalist, who... Um, reports quite often on the BBC Food Programme. The BBC Food Programme is aired on Radio 4, um, but they have a podcast which all the episodes go on to. And it's been going for such a long time. There are loads of podcasts on there. I actually went back just um, last month and found a chestnut one from three years ago. I, I wow. listened to it. Um, and Dan Saladino seems to be the um, kind of regen agriculture champion of the BBC Food Programme, which is why particularly I like his episodes. I listened to one recently following the um, COP conference in Glasgow about um, how cattle and pigs play their part in um, assisting reversion of climate change. Mm -hmm. And that was a really nice perspective to hear. He had some great interviews on there. The opposite of what you hear on media, isn't it? Exactly including a visit to a to a slaughterhouse, which was really um, infor- informing. And he wow. also has another one on there recently um, called Follow the Money, which I thought was a great title because obviously... What was it called? We know. Follow the Money. Oh, we know, okay. and most people listening to this know, you know, how much corporations play into the way that our food world is today and mm-hmm. how, you know, if you inform yourself on that, it changes how you act. Yeah. Um, and so he's just... He's been working on the, the food programme for ages... He's done that kind of episode, but he also does episodes where he's been to places. He went to Georgia um, in in a couple of wonderful episodes. um, I think they were a year or so ago where he looked at Georgian food and um, Georgian being the home of wine. It was originally where wine came from and digging into the cuisine there and how they serve it and everything that's around it. It is, they are absolutely beautiful episodes and I'd recommend anyone signing up to the BBC Food Programme on your podcast app and dig back and, and listen. 
So I, I kind of love what, what Dan does anyway. And then I, I saw this book coming out and I thought, hmm, this looks quite interesting. The, the subtitle for it is The World's Rarest Foods and Why We Need to Save Them. Mm. And basically it's, it explains, I haven't read it yet, but as far as I understand, it explains how and why we lost food diversity, how important food diversity is yes. and how we need to save it and how we can save it. I've got um, a paragraph from it that I wanted to read and then a, something that someone said about it. Can I, can I go ahead with those? Yes. Let's yeah, okay. So there's, there's an interesting bit in um, the intro that says, consider these facts. The source of much of the world's food seeds is mostly in the control of just four corporations. Oh my gosh. Half of all the world's cheeses are produced with bacteria or enzymes manufactured by a single company. One in four beers drunk around the world is the product of one brewer. From the USA to China, most global pork production is based around the genetics of a single breed of pig. And perhaps most famously, although there are more than 1,500 different varieties of banana, global trade is dominated by just one, the Cavendish a cloned fruit grown in monocultures so vast that their scale can only be comprehended from the view of an aeroplane or by satellite. Wow. I, I wanted to read that bit because I just... It's mind-blowing. Yeah. That's really what, what the book's about. And then there's a little bit here, which I got from Amazon, which I wanted to read as well. I'm making it a bit bigger so I can see it properly. So it says, in this captivating and wide-ranging book... Dan Saladino spans the globe to uncover the stories of these foods. He meets the pioneering farmers, scientists, cooks, food producers and indigenous communities who are preserving food traditions and fighting for change. I've got goosebumps. All human history is woven through these stories, from the first generation migrations to the slave trade to the refugee crisis today. But eating to extinction is about so much more than preserving the past. Eating to extinction reveals a world at crisis point. The future of our planet depends on reclaiming genetic biodiversity before it's too late. <clears throat> and then my ah. whole body's just covered in goosebumps. Yeah. So as you can probably imagine by what I'm, what I'm saying, I'm really keen to get into this book. <laughs> oh yeah, I can tell. Is that the one you're starting out your year with? I think I'm the one, one of the ones that I'm going to talk about later, I've already started and we're recording before 2022 started. So um, that's kind of cheating. But that's the one I'm going to <laughs> next, I think. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And can you say the name of that podcast one more time? Yeah, it's the BBC Food Programme. BBC Food Programme. Is it just what it's called? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it's called that. I just, well, you're okay. um, talking about your book. So I'll go to my podcast app and I'll check. Okay, perfect. But, and right. we'll link it in the show notes. <clears throat> so I've got a. A couple stacks here. Um, I feel like I should preamble this by saying some of the books that I choose to read that I put, I brought down here to discuss because they felt pertinent mm -hmm. um, to the podcast are not really <clears throat> what you would expect in terms of they're just fiction. So um, think about like mm. if you read Little House on the Prairie books or the Little Britches books, those are American authors. I don't know that you guys yeah. read them over there, but um, <clears throat> those kind of books, you get a peripheral view of how food was a part of the life, you know, at that time. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I find that to be 
just as if not more so informative than somebody reading me a list of techniques and how to do it. I feel like it gives me something for those techniques to land on when I hear about it. Mm. When I read about making eggnog and then, you know, remember <laughs> I read that passage from Farmer Boy when we did the live cookup yeah. with the patrons and how they were drinking it out in the field. And they said that, you know, if you had good eggnog, you could hay all day. And mm. <clears throat> it just, it gives you the perspective on the food at the time and it, it puts it in some context. And I feel like it's kind of more like, have you ever looked at an old picture, Allison, like from when you were a kid and there's, there's you in the middle and that's fun, but you're more interested in look, that's, do you see that car behind yeah. us? That was the car dad had that time. And you're more <laughs> interested in the things around the subject matter mm. than the actual picture. Yeah. So that's kind of how it feels. Um, and then I told you that I was reading Shakespeare this year and mm -hmm. I'm almost to the end. I'm dragging my feet because I'm, I'm working my way through the two noble kinsmen. And I'm like, this is, unless they find another manuscript and authenticate it, this is the last time I'll read Shakespeare for the first time. <laughs> so I'm like trying to savor every second of it, but all the food they mentioned in there, like in Cymbeline, when they mentioned the healing beers that they would use to revive yeah. somebody. And then when Gertrude, um, you know, got in Hamlet, got the, um, the guards drunk, um, on wassail and then uh, you know whenever um in the henry ads whenever that oh my gosh i can't remember his name whenever he he swears and says apple jacks you know um <laughs> those are all foods that that we can learn about and seeing them yeah. in context is exciting so <clears throat> it's more like a way to experience it when it comes to me in narrative and I know you do this too, Allison, which is a good example, as you just talked about the book that you're reading is I know you and I both follow the footnotes. So find who inspired mm. the person who inspired you. That's a great way to find incredible books. Yeah, I totally right. agree with that. It's the first thing place yeah. I go to and I have a book. Yep. Yep. The footnotes, the bibliography. Um, <clears throat> so I have, I'll, I'll just read a couple titles and then I'll mention one. Yeah, or two. thanks. So I have letters to a young farmer on food farming and our future. It's published by the Stone Barnes Center for Food and Agriculture. They're in New York. It's a beautiful farm. I've been up there. Um, Dan Barber um, wrote The Third Plate, which I think I've mentioned on the podcast mm -hmm. before. Yeah. And he's in this book. He's the chef at Stone Barnes. And so um, <clears throat> different people authored letters in here. Barbara Kingsolver, Wendell Berry, Elliot Coleman, Michael Pollan, Temple Grandin. So those are some names people might know. <clears throat> and then there's a lot of other people that we might not know yet that this book will expose you to those authors. So I can't wait to finish that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I'm reading, I did read it in high school, but I'm rereading Edith Schaefer's book, The Hidden Art of Homemaking, just to see what um, inspiration will come from that. She's very much- oh, A in, lovely title. Wow. Yeah, yeah. She's very much into the spirit of, you know, making, well, making art out of what you're doing at home. She's a lot like you in mm. that sense, Alison, where she, she wants to see the artistry behind the curtain hanging on the wall and not just, it's a curtain hanging on the wall, but this is my yeah, art, yeah. you know? Um, <clears throat> Lark Rice to Candleford. It's a trilogy by Flora Thompson. It's one of the, I want to say it's early Victorian era. And <clears throat> I'm, I, I want to read it other than the fact that it's just going to be a good story because um, a lot of people had said that it it's known as like one of the last great 
illustrations of life at that time. And she captured mm-hmm. it really well. And I know there's going to be lots of peripheral reference to food and farms and the way that they run things. So I'm just interested to see. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I have some Annie Dillard books. Um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek was highly recommended to me. I haven't found a copy of it yet, but I have found a couple of her books at the used bookstore. So um, she's an author I'm not familiar with yet, but many people mm-hmm. whose literary life I trust have recommended her to me um, as another illustration of, you know, American life and, and food from a time before. <clears throat> and then I'll say two more books, Allison, and then I'll throw it back to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have, I think you, you'll probably mention this one as well. So I won't say much about this, but Defending Beef mm-hmm. by Nicole Han, Nicolette Han Nyman. And excuse me, why am I clearing my throat so much? That's really annoying. And then when I said, find who inspired the person who inspires you, um, Fred Provenza was one of the people who inspired Nicolette Han Nyman. And he wrote, yeah, isn't he? He wrote Nourishment, Mm. What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom. She mentioned this book in an interview I listened to. And she said that his sort of thesis is that animals instinctively find the food and the nutrition that they need and that humans actually have the ability to do that as well. We just, like you said, follow the money. We have our instincts kind of clogged up um, by those four corporations that you mentioned and all those controlled um, you know, bacteria that we're all accustomed to the flavor of now and everything. So mm. I'm really excited to read that book. And I should also say, I, I always have ambitious book lists. I do usually get through 40 or 50 books in a year, but um, <laughs> you never know what could happen. And we'll just see how far I get. <laughs> That's quite impressive number. I don't know if I'm going to get through that many this year. Well, they're not all but, huge. Um... They're not all Satopia length tomes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the Fred Provenza... Um, I wanted to um, just quickly say that on the Peak Human podcast, there was an interview with Fred Provenza. If you just search their feed, um, it's from quite a while ago. But I listened to that that maybe three months ago. And he talks about fascinating stories about how when he's seen animals with certain diseases, they go and eat the thing that they need to do to cure that disease without knowing that that's the thing they eat. And it just how we as humans probably have that within our DNA, but we've lost it. And yeah, I find, I find him very fascinating. Tara Couture has said that too. She's, she's very Mm. similar in that, in that mindset. She said there's some specific herb that she noticed her cattle were just like, yeah decimating during a certain season of year and so then you know some season passed and and she thought well they love this so much so she went and picked a bunch and threw it over the fence for them and they wouldn't even look at it and so then she ended up doing some research and she found it was just had a specific compound that they needed at a certain time fascinating i know to get back to that level of um instinct yes you know to uncover all the layers that have hidden that I find that totally inspiring. Mm-hmm. I really do. So yeah, my next book actually is Defending Beef. Okay, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so I could talk a little bit more than you did about it um, because yeah. maybe not everyone knows about it. So <clears throat> as you said, it's by it's by Nicolette Harm Nyman. 
And she's just produced a second edition, which is why it's kind of been, um, I've noticed it recently. Mm -hmm. And Nicolette is um, a rancher and an ex-vegetarian, like (laughs) long-term vegetarian. Crazy. And I think that there seems to be, as we know, there's a common misconception in the, the world that animals are bad for climate change and beef is the worst. And I think her that's really was her reason for writing the book um to give out the evidence to say that that's not true um and you know everything that i've read points to that as well but i want to understand more and i know she knows a lot more than i do so i'm really Mm -hmm. interested in in reading it the other thing that i think is that i scribbled down this morning before we came to record about this um is i heard Minette Batter, who is the president of the National Farmers Union in the UK, on an interview with actually Dan Saladino again, saying, you know, that chemical fertilizers, if we don't use animals in our food chain, we have to use chemical fertilizers. And a couple of months ago, I kind of dove into this, you know, what what are the chemical fertilizers? What's the history of them? How are they made, et cetera, et cetera. And they're produced at the moment using fossil fuels. So we are, if we don't use animals to fertilize our soil, um, we have to turn to chemical fertilizers. Mm -hmm. And that means using fossil fuels. And it also means creating a a chemical and putting chemical into the soil. And what Minette Batter said about this is just, she just, she feels like that discussion is just missing. That everyone's talking about, Uh you know, cows have methane, which is one of the things that Nicolette, um, explains in the book more about why that's not what it's made out to be Mm -hmm. everyone seems to be talking about this kind of thing but no one's talking about the fact that animals give to the soil and they have done for thousands of years that's why people kept animals you know to they give to the soil and then you have a bit of meat or a bit of dairy which is good for humans as well and i i find it fascinating that when I look at the discussions between the different um, factors in the food world, no one seems to be saying, but look, hang on a minute, how how are we going to keep our soils fertile? And I think this this book will um, help me flesh out that part of it for me. And um, I think Nicolette's quite famous for for being the person who said it's not the cow, it's the how. Yes, and she did. saying that you know, it, it don't blame cows. Look mm-hmm. at our industrial food system. That's the problem, not yeah. the cow. Yep. And yep. Um, I'm really excited to to delve into the latest edition of her research. I have um a quote to read about it actually, which I found, which is um <laughs> from another person I really admire, who's Patrick <laughs> Holden. Patrick uh-huh. is um the founder and the chief executive of the Sustainable Food Trust, which is a UK charity. And he is a farmer and he has a podcast um, as part of the Sustainable Food Trust work. And he has actually interviewed Nicolette and interviewed lots of different people. And I particularly like his um, perspective because um, he doesn't just talk to people who are um, farmers and who are on the regenerative agriculture side he, he's also interviews vegetarians and he's Good. dealt with you know he's 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 interviewed um famous vegetarian chefs and talked to them you know he actually yeah. 
bridges the gap rather than trying mm-hmm. to just have it be people who are only on his side. Anyway, um, he said about this book, we all need to understand the story behind our food. This is the strongest and most articulate case for understanding the central importance of grazing livestock in sustainable food systems that I've read. And um, yeah, I really admire Patrick. So I'm, I'm really excited about diving into this book and, um, and learning some things and letting it cement things that I've, I've been reading and, and learning for kind of eight, nine, ten months all last year. Mm-hmm. I know you want to read it as well, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the Another thing to mention on Nicolette Hahn Nyman that's worthwhile mentioning is she's an environmental lawyer. That's how she met her husband, who was a rancher. <laughs> mm. So uh, she was working for a law firm and one of the jobs that they were working with was involving... Um, her husband's or you know future husband's ranch in california or something and that was how she met him so she knows Mm -hmm. whereof she speaks when she's discussing these environmental aspects this has been her life's work to study um and it's part of why she left vegetarianism behind because she knew the facts Mm. as far as healing the planet so should i read a few more books Alison yeah you go let's tag back to you and see what you've got there yeah okay I have one I want to recommend I'm going to say that I'm recommending it for moms for their kids but honestly Alison every time I open this book I think how much you would love it it's called Hungry Mm. Planet What the World Eats and I think it's pretty well known at least in homeschool circles it is I feel like pretty much most of the homeschool families seems to own it um Mm. it's a huge full page photographed book um, where the photographers went on a mission basically to go around the world. I'm trying to remember when they published it. I think it was in the nineties. I'm flipping open the front piece to see, Um, but they go around the world, um, Australia, Bhutan, Chad, Mongolia, Poland, the United States, Ecuador. They just went around the world and they basically a family Mm-hmm. I don't know how to explain it. Every every country, a family would basically gather up all the food that they eat in a ah, week. Yeah, I've seen the pictures of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they take the picture. And then in the book, there's a little, there's a chapter about each family, a little bit about them, some context. Um, it is utterly fascinating. Just sit and look. And it is, huh. They also put the price like the cost of the food um Mm -hmm. and it is completely mind-blowing to look and see the more it's scary allison honestly the Mm -hmm. more i'll say quote-unquote developed that a country is um the Mm -hmm. worse the food is i mean it just Mm -hmm. descends into ultra processed you know frozen pizzas and like soda type things um here's ecuador one week's food in september um, the total food expenditure for the week is $31 and 55 cents. And, um, they eat, you know, they list their grains, how much corn flour Mm -hmm. and pea flour, what they grow, what they buy, um, the dairy, um, their beverages, which is stinging nettle tea and 
corn silk tea. And it's just so fascinating. Um, so that's a great one for um, families, really, because it's really interesting for kids. But, you know, you and I are interested in that too, Alison. <laughs> and, and what a, a historical record. I mean, mm-hmm. seriously, that as a, as a piece of work. Absolutely. That's just amazing. They also did mm. another book that we have called Material World. And that is also mm. fascinating where they went around the world and a family literally would empty their house into basically Gosh. the driveway, shall we say. And you would see every single thing that they owned lined up, you know, and the family stands behind it. And I always think like, what chaos that has to be like, Hey, do you want to take everything <laughs> out of your house? Hope it doesn't rain and then put it all back, you know, but like they went to Mongolia and, and they went to, you know, the United States and the UK and everything. And it's just fascinating to see. And again, the more developed that a country is, the Mm. more stuff they have and the less useful the stuff is like it's stuff that doesn't really have a purpose and the more they spend on stuff and the less they spend on food i'm betting the the um the less developed in quotes countries spend far more money on food than they percentage wise than the priority we is flip-flopped mm. yeah yeah <clears throat> so that's a fun um a fun thing to look at with the kids and i like that kind of book because it yeah. Bridges divides, you know, it's so easy in the um, news media culture that we live in to think of foreigners as foreign, you know, and um, books like that enable you to to see inside other people's worlds and realise they're just no different from you. You know, they do their shopping every week. They have stuff in their house and that's a really beautiful thing, I think. Mm -hmm. It also is Mm. interesting to me reading because I see that the the more Western countries have really um, industrialized food. And then a lot of other countries are literally still eating ancestral food the way that they have for thousands of years. Like, it's crazy. Please Um, let it it stay. Please let it stay. (laughs) And we're here trying, like bending over backwards to try and reverse the process and they're Mm. and and it's it's sad though because um with tv and everything then western culture is really popularized yeah yeah um because it's seen you know and so people try to like people want the foods that are here and stuff like that yeah i saw that when we traveled you know we asked our friends what should we bring when we travel and they said oh bring like tons of snacks to give to people because they want the like American snacks and things. Yeah, you know, that that happened to me when I went to Russia. It was quite a while ago, but I Mm -hmm. took a train with two academics into the middle of nowhere in Russia and then on a kind of a rickety old bus. We made it in one piece. Um, (laughs) And we went and shared and stayed with people. It was a musical trip. It was an ethnomusicology trip to, to document songs and the folk culture okay, around the songs that is and we would work we would eat we would go to these people's houses and record them singing the folk songs and then they would give us food and mm. we it came from the garden and it came from the river oh, and it nice. was you know tea things made with berries and oh. fat from the pig oh, and yes. homemade vodka <laughs> and just the most amazing food but the people who wanted to show that to us were you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. The daughters and the sons of those people just wanted to know about America 
and the UK and they dressed differently and they wanted to eat differently because, you know, they, they don't want to be part of the old kind of mm-hmm. um, family. And yeah, what you said, I mean, I, I saw that there and it was really sobering to see it. Just yeah. this beautiful, beautiful um, welcome and the food and the um, just the feeling of it. And then comparing that to when, we, when I got home to the UK, I, I went into a supermarket and I just, I didn't know what to do. I was looking around at all this meat in kind of packages and thinking, well, I, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. And, and yet I knew that the younger generation of all those people that I met they didn't they didn't want what was there they wanted where what i signified and what the americans with me signified and yeah it was so brilliant it is really and it it makes you really think allison because uh it's one thing for us to screw up our own country and (laughs) you know what i mean like yeah uh, you know what i mean but for us to then go and infect other countries Mm. to the point that they'll lose their heritage to the point that you have ethnomusicology you know going to these great lengths to try and preserve dying traditions because they're dying like that's that's that that's hard to think about yeah i agree so let me throw so allison that makes it all the more important what we're doing you know if we can try to encourage just generally anybody to try and um I don't know not get totally swept away with all the you know ultra consumerism that that we can I don't know I don't know what I'm trying to say but I guess what I'm trying to say is we care about it (laughs) yes yeah we care in a big way and Mm. um it's important you know languages are being lost um traditions are being lost and um food i don't know there's a lot that's being lost and it's not and that's that's what eating to extinction my first book was about you know that's what it's about yeah Um, yeah it's the same thing you're circling kind of back round, which is um yeah which i guess is right because this is what what motivates us to do the work that we do so yeah it's so much bigger than just you know am i eating the right amount of protein like this is so much more than that so let me throw you a couple more titles actually on that, on yeah. that um, vibe. So <clears throat> this is a stack that I put together. That's kind of farm related. Um, one mm-hmm. is called speak to the earth by Rachel Pedden. I'm not sure how to say her name pages from mm-hmm. a farm wife's journal. I just found it. I think it was 50 cents or 25 cents at a thrift store. I saw it and I just thought, I don't know, that looks really interesting. Her subtitle is a book of rural virtues and a naturalist philosophy. And she published another book called Rural Free in 1961 and a book called mm-hmm. The Land of the People in 1966. And this book is published in 74. So okay. just flipping through it, it looks like that kind of book where there will be lots of anecdotal incidents and things to just savor and enjoy. Um, 
And then I have a small booklet called Beekeeping for Beginners given to us by our neighbors when they moved. They gave us a number of bee books and I figure I can probably get through the smallest one first. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. we want to you, start- You're planning to get some bees then, yeah? Yeah, yeah, we really should. It, it doesn't wow. make sense not to, you know. We have yeah. fruit trees and we want to plant more. We're planting wildflowers and we have gardens that need, you know, to be pollinated and we yeah. have all the room in the world. So um, there's really no reason not to put up some bee houses. And then I have Joel Salatin's book, Pastured Poultry Profits. So mm-hmm. he talks in there about, um, it's, it's an oldish looking book. Like it looks like it was printed on a typewriter. Um, it's from 1993 and he just talks about, you know, different ways to, you know, house your chickens and what to feed them at different times and things like that. Um, I want to read, I, I would like to read books by Temple Grandin. I haven't read anything mm-hmm. by her yet. Um, and the first book I picked up of hers, I found a used copy is called Animals Make Us Human. So I'm really interested um, to read that. The quote on the back of the book says, neurology has Oliver Sacks, nature has Annie Dillard, and the lucky animal world has Grandin, a master <laughs> intermediary between humans and our fellow beasts. And I've read everything by Oliver Sacks. I love all his books. So, <laughs> yeah, wonderful. And now I have Absolutely Annie Dillard amazing. on my list too. Yeah, totally amazing. Um, I think I, it's really good that you you can give these recommendations. And, you know, I think um, I always, I really appreciate someone giving a recommendation. So we mm-hmm. should probably at some point say that everyone listening, if they want to recommend some books to us, yeah, rather than idea. us just sharing them mm-hmm. that way, please do come and let us know. Let us know yeah. what you want to read this year. Yeah. And I'll probably say that again at the end of the podcast. But Because recommendations really other thing with books aren't they you know yeah. you know now I know you're reading those it makes me interested because I, I like you I don't remember if you. I said this on the last <laughs> podcast but I feel like I said something to you I was telling you what Lexi had said to me which was you know when you have friends who read you never run out of anything to talk about because you always mm. have these ideas coming through like you and I Allison if we sat down and we said let's only talk about what we've been reading we would be there for seven hours and and never yeah. run out of anything to talk about I have to stop myself telling you <laughs> all the things I'm reading because I haven't got the we haven't got the time to talk about them all yeah yeah and she she was saying you know if people people who don't read a lot of times do you notice that when they sit down to you they're talking about so listen to what she said to me and what he said to her and then mm. I said and then and then she said this and it's like it's not even interesting. Like, let's talk about something Ideas. big. Yeah. Ideas. yeah. Um, I did post on Instagram, Allison, and I asked um, if mm. anybody wanted to tell me titles that they were reading this year. And oh, a couple right. that came in was Nourishing Traditions, Mama yeah. Bear Apologetics, which I've never heard of, <laughs> mm. uh, Simple Sustenance Health on Instagram, she said, and a hundred more. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah nourishing Diets. Um, the mm-hmm. Primal Connection and Real Food for Pregnancy were the books that she read last year. Mm-hmm. Um, the Outlander series, uh, The Great Divorce, Hidden in Plain View. I'm not, I don't know what that book is. I've not heard that title. No. Another person said Mama Bear Apologetics. Wow. I might have to um, look Morning that. Time with Cindy Rollins, The Real Anthony Fauci, also reading. Christmas Carol and Honest Advent. Oh, I don't know what Honest Advent hmm. is. 
but I do know what the Christmas Carol is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was a couple book titles. There's um, a couple of people responded to that sticker. So that was fun. Awesome. <clears throat> yeah. And then the last book I put on this little farm yeah. stack was Range. Mm-hmm. Why Generalist Triumph in a Specialized World by David Epstein. I found this mm-hmm. at a used bookstore for super cheap. And so I grabbed it. But I think I also have an, I'm pretty sure I have the audio as well. I have to look. Um, so I'll probably mm-hmm. listen to that on audio. But that was recommended to me by Cindy Rollins. And she is a homeschool mom of nine. And she knows a little bit about having a range of skills. But what the book argues is that we've gone from where, <clears throat> and you notice this, Allison, when you read those books about farmers back in the day, and especially the, those peripheral mm-hmm. books I was talking about, like Little Britches and things like that, there's just so many broad skills that these people have in order to survive. And we live now in an era where you have a pinky toe doctor and a big toe doctor. Yeah. And the pinky toe doctor and the big toe doctor don't talk to each don't other. Don't talk to each other. You know, yeah. and so when you have um, an ankle problem, nobody's connecting the dots right mm. so he just and I'm exaggerating of course but he's just talking mm, about not how much. <laughs> <laughs> not much Victoria Sweet refers to that in God's Hotel also where she said she'll have pe- patients come in and she she does the old method um which she you know I told you she learned it from Hildegard of Bingen or Bingen, I don't know mm-hmm. how to say the name. Bingen. Um, Bingen. Bingen yeah. um, so she learned this from Hildegard of Bingen, where she just sits and she just sits with the patient and, and watches them. And then she, she'll she take their um, vitals by hand. And she was talking about how, you know, now somebody walks in the door and they're, I've seen this in hospitals where you can actually like get onto a machine and it'll take its vitals for you. Mm. Um, you don't even have to have an assistant or a nursing assistant take them, you know? So she was just talking about how patients will come in and because she sits and looks at the patient and then she does their entire physical exam herself, she puts together dots and then she looks through their paperwork and sees that one technician saw this and a different therapist saw that and a doctor noted this and nobody discussed it with each other and nobody put together the diagnosis and sometimes people suffered for years when they didn't need to. And mm. so I'm really excited to read this book range about just having, um, you know, broader, <clears throat> broader skills because that's, uh, that's farming. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that's being a mom and, and having a family as well, really, isn't it? Yeah, you know? you're right. What else do you have, Alison? Okay. Well, I'm going to put my next two books together in one. And I'll just praise you by saying that um, this year has been a year when I've delved into beer. I've divin doven. I don't know quite which past participle. I heard a new past participle in The Hobbit last night when Rob was reading it to Gabriel. And it must have been a really old one. It was throve instead of thrived. And I thought, yeah, throve. I've never I've never heard that before. So I'll just make up my own past participle. Um, and this, this has been a year of, of like yeah, he says exactly. hol- holpen or hoped instead of helped or fascinating um, like they keep some of those old um conjugations like older roots yeah throve i throve mm-hmm. um so yeah i've been i've been diving into beer this year or last year um this year as we speak but it will be last year soon and um i i've kind of gone into beer backwards in that 
I went to Sandor Katz Wild Fermentation, just taking a shot, having said that, of Combusher. And um, I went straight into a 5,000-year-old Egyptian beer recipe without having ever, ever made beer or wine before. And yeah. I have been experimenting with that. And I'm now, as you know, as listeners to other episodes will know, have made my own yeast culture and have played around with lots and lots of different things and done lots of reading. But I don't really know the basics of beer making at all. And I keep coming across terminology and ideas in the kind of weird um, beer books I'm reading. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know what they mean. So I bought um, a book called How to Brew by John Palmer. And it's basically a step-by-step -step guide as, as to how to brew. And I won't want to brew what he's brewing probably, but I want to know how the process works and the science behind it and the technology behind it so yes. that's going to be kind of filling in holes that that i've not ever learned i tend to do this with things i dive in at some weird deep end yes when i started making sourdough i was making i was using non-wheat english grown grains and making them 100 percent whole grain and someone said to me you know people don't start sourdough like this you know and i was like but i do so i've done the same with beer so I've got that. I've also got another beer book, which is called Wild Brews, Beer Beyond the Influence of the Brewer's Yeast. And it's by Jeff Sparrow. Wild and brews? I, wild brews. Oh, wild. Wild, yeah. And I, I really feel ever so strongly, as everyone knows, about um, home cultures, not commercial cultures, in mm -hmm. everything, you know, in bread, in wine, in whatever ferments you're doing there is no need for a commercial culture and commercial cultures have been the death of many things as that quote yep. that I read from Dan Saladino's book, you know, the, the beer. And I, I would not make a beer with a yeast from a packet. I just, I've, mm -hmm. this year, several people have talked to me about beer making and, and, and it's become clear to me that I'm just not interested in using a yeast from a packet ever. Yeah. yeah. And so this wild brews, talks about different beers and talks about yeast cultures and then I think walks you through several different steps. So that's going to be an interesting read and will help me to continue to grow my kind of ale and beer making skills and take me to um, yeah. the place where I want to go with it, hopefully. So those are my two beer books. <laughs> you know, I told you, Alison, when we did the um, cider that I tried doing one with a champagne yeast. Yeah, I remember. And... I I don't know. The wild one was really good. The the one that we like inoculated. Honestly, we ended up pouring it all out. <laughs> mm. I didn't like it. It um there's a lot of uh depth, I think, that you give up when you use an inoculation. You get that perfect isolated mm. flavor that people know, but also there's just I don't know, like, it's just not the same. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, that perfect isolated flavor is what they're there for. So people can produce it over and over again and everyone knows yes. what to expect. So it's then they buy controlled. a bottle of something, they know what they get, but that's not fermenting. No, I don't think. No, it's in my opinion. Yeah. Um, like it's, uh, it would qualify in the description, but yeah, obviously it is scientifically fermenting, but where's the fun? And if somebody starts with that, I don't, yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to say that you can't uh, start with 
that, you know, a, a lot of us, that's where we started. Like mm -hmm. I had all kinds of inoculations, you know, and then started kind of toying around with wild ferments and stuff. So, um, I have no problem with somebody starting with that. And like with your beer book, I think that's the same way I do things too. If I started out with understanding the microbiological context of something and then, <laughs> then I went into my kitchen, it'd be confusing, but I'm more likely yeah. to start flinging things around and then being like, yeah. you know what? Now I want to know why this really worked. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's how my brain works too. <clears throat> so yeah. Yeah, I'll be doing lots more experimenting still, but hopefully I'll be filling in a few gaps. In the well, do you know what got me interested in flying, Allison? It was mm. not reading Bernoulli's principle. It was mm. getting on an airplane and flying yeah. from Seattle to Moscow. That mm. hooked me on flying. And I literally had to go from that to flight school. Like it was that intense of a love yeah. where I did have to read Bernoulli's principle. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't sitting down and looking at high seek slow, you know, like that is not what made me want to fly. It was the experience. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, I get that. Okay. I have a couple books that are working books for the kitchen. So I put them in their own. I category. wonder whether we can actually, you can see anything <laughs> with all those books piled around you. <laughs> It took me two trips to carry them all downstairs, okay? <laughs> and then I had to go back up for my hot coffee. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I've told you before that when I have a cookbook, I read the cookbook, even if it's just like a list of recipes. I still sit down and read through the whole thing because I mm. want to see all the recipes and everything. But a lot of the books that you and I enjoy, Alice, and I've noticed our cookbooks have a lot more in them than just the recipe because they usually yeah. come with history and backstory. So I'm going to slam out a couple titles here. Um, Carla Emery's Old Fashioned Recipe Book. I have my grandma's copy taped together from the um, mm. 50s or 60s. And um, it's crumbling, so I have to be careful when I read it. But um, I've read quite a lot of this book. Oh, it's from the 70s. Never mind. I've read quite a lot of it, but I've not finished it. So I'm going to be working more on that book this year. I have, <clears throat> for anybody who's in the U.S., this would probably be more interesting since mm. it's about America. Um, although, you know what? Aaron's not in the U.S., but he would probably love this book. Renewing America's mm. Food Traditions, Saving and Savoring the Continent's Most Endangered Foods. It's mm. um, edited by Gary Paul Nabin, Nabin and a foreword by Deborah Madison. I love all of her books. She writes some great vegetarian cooking books. Um, mm. So this book, he divides the uh, country, so the United States, into acorn nation, bison nation, chestnut nation, chili pepper nation, you know, on and on. Um, so he just kind of breaks up by region and what was mm -hmm. typically eaten in that region. It's a fascinating book. Mm -hmm. um, um, it was put together by, oh, who was it that put it together? You know, he edited it, but it was an organization that works to um, restore endangered plants and propagate native plants and things like that and try to bring mm -hmm. back some of the histories. Um, so it's just really, really fascinating. He talks about different foods that grew out here, where, why they grew out here, maybe how they got out here, what people did with them, you know, really, really old wow. um, native recipes and things like that. <clears throat> like I'd crow, like to read that book. <laughs> crow bison cattail stew. <laughs> and then mm. this is where we, this is where you and I will land in a lot of trouble, Allison. 
every mm-hmm. section has a box called further readings <laughs> <laughs> and oh, no. all of it looks so good like journals and heritage books and animal science and oh my gosh it's just so fascinating so my sister actually had called me from Bellingham and she said um I'm in this used bookstore and I this book is like one dollar or three dollars or something really cheap and she goes it just sounds like something you would like do you want it and I was like please yes (laughs) now Lexi recommended this next book to me the art of natural cheese making by David Asher I've heard of that yeah. And I was already following him on Instagram. Um, and so when she mentioned the book, I, when I looked him up, I was like, wait a minute, I'm following that guy on Instagram. And his whole thing mm. is kind of what you're talking about, Alice, and how to do cheese without inoculations. Mm. Um, or I, I mean, at least wild, Yeah, you know, wild ones. Um, I put, I've got sacred and herbal healing beers. Remember I told you, I found Yay. a copy of that book after you told yeah. me about it. Um, all of these books, I think, yeah, all of these I've found used. None of these are brand new. Um, so I, I want to work my way through that book. And then um, uh, my really good friend in Virginia, when we bought the farm, she gave me the Foxfire book. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of these books, but they're like an American heritage type thing. Um, <laughs> to give you a brief description, the front of the book says, um, it's from 1968. And the front of the book says the Foxfire book, hog dressing, log cabin building, mountain crafts and food, planting by the signs, snake lore, hunting tales, faith healing, moonshine, and other affairs of plain living. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a fun turning in a, in a churn and, and um, you know, describing how to butcher <laughs> squirrels and things like that. Um, <clears throat> there's a whole series of them. I only have the one, but it's just another book that I want to just slowly browse my way through and get some of that um, feeling for how people, because what they did was they went into the mountains where the older folk lived and tried to find and preserve what, what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the last book on here is one that I've, I'm, I've been working on this book on and off because I've worked out of it. Um, but I want to finish reading it. It's I've mentioned it on the podcast before keeping food fresh old world techniques and recipes by the gardeners of farmers in Terre Vivant. And this was one, I found it through the footnotes in Nourishing Traditions. She Mm -hmm. referred to somebody who is in this book and that was how I came across that book. So I also have a couple audio books because I like to listen to usually maybe two hours of audio a day while I'm working on like any sort of a farm or house project. And um, Jordan, who co-hosts the Fruitful and blah, Fruitful and Fearful podcast with Lexi, she told me that they listen to nourishing traditions on audio. And I thought that was, I was like, wait a minute, that's wow. actually like genius, you know, because you've read it. <laughs> Excuse me, we've read it, but to hear it just flowing past your ears. <laughs> I also, I'd be stopping all the time to write something down though. That just, <laughs> I, I can't do that with, it's yeah. awful. Well, <clears throat> what I, what I really enjoy doing with Shakespeare and I think that I will do with some of these books this year is I listened while I read and yeah. that was just okay. like, I don't know. Yeah. It was like being spoon fed. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. I think that's it. maybe I just, because I listened to, 
Rob reading to me quite a lot. The next book I'm going to talk about, he's reading to me right now. We've started it. And sometimes I look over his shoulder while he's reading and that's kind of a similar thing. It's nice. Yeah, it is. It's, it's very calming. And um, I also want to listen to The Art of Fermentation, which is another book I love, of mm. course. Um, and sometimes, do you feel, Alison, like when you read, you hear one thing and then when you listen, you hear another yeah. thing. Um, yeah. And then when you read it again, you hear something else and you listen. Mm. <laughs> so, and then I want to listen to Victoria Sweet's other book. I can't remember the name if it was, I think it was Slow Medicine. Um, hmm. Yeah. So anyways, nice. I, I am um, just briefly flicked through my head of, oh my gosh, the show notes for this episode are going to be a nightmare. <laughs> Don't worry, Alison. <laughs> I've got a tablet in front of me or a, like a, a paper on a clipboard and I've written down, I think, every single thing we've said so far. Wow. <laughs> so okay. we should be okay. <laughs> Can I go on to my books now? Let's hear them. I've got two more. I've got two more and I'm actually going to put them together, I think, just oh, okay. like I did the brewing books. Yeah, I've, because I've done they all do of mine. actually have a similar. I've done all of mine. Oh, you've so. done all yours. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to get comfortable with these two. So <laughs> both of the next two have an Italian connection. Oh. Which is why I'm going to put them together. So the first one I have already started, even though it's not quite 2022 yet. Um, it's called Chewing the Fat. An oral history oh. of Italian foodways from fascism to Dolce Vita. And it's what? by Karima Moya Noki. And now I found Karima on Instagram and um, started following her quite recently, about two weeks ago, I think. And she put this picture up of her book and I had no idea she'd written a book. And I saw it. I was wow. like, oh, my gosh, I have to read that. That just looks uh -huh. really, really good. And um, she is a professor of language at the University of Siena. And oh. basically, she, this book is a collection of interviews with very, very old Italian women from all over wow. Italy, from country, from the city, from the coast, from every walk of life. And it's them talking about their recollections, their interactions with, food how they ate how they lived what what they what they ate and it, it is absolutely fascinating and the the kind of raison d'etre for it the reason behind it is is quite clear and i'll read a bit from the from the beginning but basically she's trying to uncover the real roots of italian food because italian food as a an exported kind of notion has been used by marketeers and people who want to sell stuff and put up on this pedestal certain dishes and certain ways of eating yeah. and she's is it's become clear to her and in her research that that's really not what italian food is and was wow it's a glimpse of italian food and it's been deified yes. into something that it just never was and she's trying to show what italian food actually was by going back to you know women who are in their 90s and talking to them about how they lived and there are lots of interviews in here plus also some kind of bits that she's put in explaining certain types of things so i'm not explaining that very well am i so I'm, i've actually got this physical book here whereas the other ones are ebooks because i read a lot of ebooks so she's got bits where she's talking about the pasta industry 
Um, she's talking about the so-called Mediterranean diet. She's talking about recipes and cookbooks. She's talking about um, peasants and overlords, um, coffee surrogates, the pig, and those kind of interject between the interviews. So we've read three. This Rob's reading this to me aloud because he's really interested in it as well. And we've had three. We've read three interviews so far with three different women, completely different. Um, two of them, one from Milan and one from Rome lived in absolute just abject poverty during wow. the war and during Mussolini's reign um, over Italy. And just to hear what they went through to try and get food and what they ate and how they lived. Oh, a lump just in your throat. Oh my gosh, this was not that long ago. And then the third one was in, from Bologna, a lady from Bologna, and who was aristocratic, completely different. And we are completely hooked on it. It wow. is so well written. Her language is amazing. Wow. She's translated it into English. It's in English. And her gra grasp and mastery of, of translation is amazing because the voice of the, the lady who's, you know, in her 90s who wow. grew up in the slums in Milan and the voice of the aristocratic lady from Bologna are so well written wow. in English that it is just mesmerizing and I'm learning so much about the the way people lived and you know the territory around me and I love history anyway and I remember studying between the wars for my A-levels for my A-level history and particularly studying Mussolini and his policies and how he ran the country and just to have this and there's a few recipes in it as well it's not a recipe book but there are each woman gives a recipe for something that um, she used to eat or had it, wow. has had in her life. And so it's just, it's just an absolutely fascinating kind of first primary source of um, actually wow. seeing what, what Italian, the roots of Italian food earlier this century were. Yes. I'm going to read the, the first page, which just describes it a bit. To say Italians and the world at large love traditional Italian food is an understatement. An entire industry of gastronomic nostalgia has grown up around it, catering to tourists and natives alike. In its wake, this behemoth of commercial culinary law has glossed over the less marketable, but nonetheless fascinating, aspects of the past, the very springboard from which Italian cuisine propelled itself onto the international stage. Inglorious and uncelebrated though they may be, these foodways would be in danger of vanishing into the shadows of time as if they'd never existed, and the stories of endurance and inventiveness of an era of women along with it, were it not for the efforts of food historian Karima Moya Noki. Chewing the Fat is a compendium of 18 oral historical narratives from women who lived through the sparse and dangerous years of Italian fascism. Daily life, family, culture and recipes blend into a fascinating accounting of these women's early lives. Each narrative is separated by a brief intermezzo, illuminating points of cultural, historical and culinary interest to round out the overall mosaic effect. Gently debunking the much-loved myths of classic Italian fare, Moinocchi offers a fresh, realistic portrayal of traditional Italian food, not as we think of it, but as it really existed. Yeah, it just, it's a wonderful book. If anyone's interested in Italian food or Italian history oh or gosh. women I... or And you said it's in wars. English. Yes, yeah, in English, yeah. Okay, I have, yeah. I have to read it. 
Is isn't there there is a hashtag I follow it. Um hashtag mm. cucina povera. Is that like okay. a that's like um I guess that's the Italian equivalent of famine food, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's and and some of the dishes of that are celebrated and have been in been cast into kind of, you know, the annals of history. But to hear what these women actually ate from their lips. Yes. Thanks to this this woman who's put such work into this book is just Ugh. yeah, it, it's it's real rather than what some company or someone with a vested interest in something wants you to think mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yes and I exactly. value that and I'm really glad that she's written it and, and I'm loving it they're telling you about so. the history of it without something to sell um yeah. if you know what I mean I mean they're selling you the idea of this and the value of this but <clears throat> the yeah, so much of when you hear about some, oh, look what ancestors ate, it's because I'm selling it, you know, and I want mm. you to buy it. And I think because so many people left Italy and are now all over the world, and, in, you know, in, in the States, there are so many people with Italian ancestry who've taken that food and changed that food into what was good for them and what worked for them in the new environment they were in. Yes. But a lot of people are looking back to find their roots in Italy and yeah. it's really interesting that that the type of Italian food that is marketed as Italian food isn't really what Italian food was mm -mm. Mm -mm. and no. and to have some reality and some truth put into the situation with such engaging interviews is yeah I mean I'm so glad I stumbled oh. upon this book <laughs> and it, you said it was called um I wrote it down. Chewing the go. fat. Chewing the fat. Yeah, chewing the fat, the old ways mm. of. An oral history of Italian food An ways from history. fascism to Dolce Vita. Wow. You know, so just to, to have this before these, because the women, were, well, the women will be gone in 10, 20 years time mm -hmm. and that'll be it, you know. And it's just so important, I think. Yeah. So that's my first Italian cookbook. And I knew that you'd be interested in that. When I got this book, oh. I said to Rob, Andrea, I want to you know read it. this book. <laughs> you know it's so on my this, list. <laughs> the last book that I've got um, is probably the most recipe is recipe book because I, I don't really mm. read recipe books that much because uh -huh. the reason why is actually because I don't, well, first of all, I make up my own recipes. But secondly, yes. I really can't use a lot of the recipes in recipe books because sure. Gable doesn't eat eggs. We're not sure if Gable's... Um, milk intolerant yeah uh he is has a lectin sensitivity so he can't eat some some grains and we try to eat him lectin light and also i'm all of the sweet recipes i see in sweet things i don't eat sugar as you know or sweet things at all so i'm not interested in cooking the sweet things really i know what gable and rob like to eat sweets mostly fruit and um, yeah. sometimes i'll do them something special like you know for Christmas just gone I I did some gingerbread cookies for them um and so I, I get recipe books and I, oh, I can't have that can't do that don't want to do that for us don't and and so I don't really read that many recipe books honestly um but this one is close to my heart because it involves the farmer that we buy our meat from oh. so um Flavio as we've linked on many of the show notes, we'll probably link him on this one as well, <laughs> um, has kind of 
um, been involved in a book that's just come out, which is called Val di Sieve Trenta e Lode, which basically means Val di Sieve is the Valley of Sieve, which Sieve is a river. And I live in a town called Ponta Sieve, the bridge yes. over the river Sieve. And so it's the valley of the river Sieve, which is the area, the territory which I live. 30, uh-huh. 30 recipes. And um, the last word, Lode, is praise. And it's a book that um, several people have written together recently where they talk about the richness of the land around Val de Sierra, around this valley, the territory, what it is, the terroir. They talk about the farming traditions. They talk about um, the slowness of um, artisanal food around here. They talk about farming. They talk about Flavio's farm. And there are 30 recipes in it using um, Flavio's produce. And there's um, just, I think it's a mixture of recipes and lovely photos and um, descriptions of real food. And so I just, I mean, I have so much respect for Flavio. He's young and he's so dedicated to what he does. And he's not only a farmer, but he's so... um, tech savvy and um, yeah. marketing savvy to, mm-hmm. to bring his food to people around him and also to local restaurants and you know so many different collaborations that he's done it's wonderful and we've been to his farm a couple of times it's just it's he's doing such important work and he's so passionate about it the alignment is just spot on and yes. I read so I, I really wanted to read this book because it's about where I live and it's written around where I live and yeah. it's using meat from a guy that I buy our meat from. And I would really yeah. love to, to celebrate that and, and just, yeah, have that in my world and, and know that it, it's the community around me. So that's my last book. I have to, <laughs> even if I can't read it, I have to get myself a copy of that because I love <laughs> Flavio too, even though I don't know him, I just follow him on Instagram, but it's so amazing. You know, like you said, in in Italy, so many of the young people don't want to be farmers and stuff like that. So yeah. that's, that's just awesome um, that he is. Yeah, and and so. yes, you need somebody who can, that, that's the trick of it is you need somebody who loves the old ways, but knows the new ways and can get the marketing out there. Yeah. That, that's what he does. There are so I'm many so little little pockets where you find these amazing things but nobody knows about it you know which doesn't give Mm. them doesn't give them less value but you know then they can they die out on their own and and they're never seen you know so Mm. that's amazing oh those are awesome books Allison thank you thank you for sharing one of yours too Uh, yeah yeah, I just wonder if if anyone can find you underneath a pile of books (laughs) (laughs) I have to call Gary come and get me out yeah Um, please um, I don't, do you do, do you keep a commonplace book? What like do you mean? Your, um, like the, like when you come across a quote that you like and do you write it down like in a notebook? Ah, or? No, usually I'm, um, I'm not very respectful of, of books. Um, I know that some people don't break spines and don't do <laughs> I know, anything I know, to I'm them. Not. I, I, I break <laughs> the spines. I write in them. I scribble things. And in pencil, I don't write in pen. Um, but no, I tend to underline things in books and put post-it note sticky things in them. And I read a lot on the e-ink reader um, because I don't want to have loads of things to cart around with me 
Um, yeah. And, and yeah. also it's cheaper on the ink reader, particularly mm-hmm. if I'm reading English books, because in Italy it's not so easy to get yes. English language books in, um, you know, paperback or hardback form. And the reverse is And trickier. there I use highlighting and mm. write notes. So then I can go back in my app and go to the notes to find something again. Um, yeah, that's but cool. But no, I... I, no, so you do commonplace. You, you, you do commonplace. Yeah, There's different way. ways of commonplacing. Some people post it on Twitter. Some people post it on Facebook. Some people just um, save it in a note in their phone. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I usually, if I if I have a phone next to me when I'm reading, then I end up spending more time on the phone than in the book. So I mm. write it down in a notebook <laughs> just mm-hmm. to keep myself from getting distracted. But yeah, okay, that's cool. Yeah, it's fun to go back and see things that you saved and. Yeah. Um, one one of the people on the um, Literary Life podcast, his wife looked at his commonplace book and she was like, what? What are all these things you wrote down? He was like, oh, I write down th- quotes that I strongly disagree with also because I think they're interesting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's that's a cool way to be. I yeah, like that. I thought that was cool. Yeah, me too. Um, <clears throat> also, I, I know you, you talked about, I, I can't remember if I asked you on the kitchen table chat or on the actual mm. podcast about your reading time, but so I know you, you read a lot, like neither of us really listed much of our leisure reading that we do on here, mm. um, which obviously there will be some of that, but mm. it, it always serves the end. Like, I think I'm just reading, you know. Shakespeare or Pride and Prejudice or something and then you're like wait a minute they made that they ate that there's no way and it always you know no no reading is wasted when when you only read good books so I've just gone into a dream because you said Pride and Prejudice and I'm thinking of Mr. Darcy I've just gone into some sort of daze here (laughs) Alison 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 are you there are you there (laughs) yes yes sorry (laughs) what sorry (laughs) oh Well, it, it is the truth universally acknowledged that Alison mm. can get lost in thought as soon as we mention yeah. titles of her favorite books. But mm. um, it is important, I think, if you do have, if somebody does have a, an intent or, or a desire to read a lot of books, you know, when you look at the year stretching out ahead, it seems like there's so much time. But how much time are you actually reading each day and chipping away and um, mm. at your stack? And I know you said that you read in the evening I read in the morning because yeah. evenings are a little more chaotic for us getting everybody into bed mm-hmm. and everything shut down and then I read just for fun when I'm in bed like it, I try to pick a book mm-hmm. that I don't want to like highlight or take notes on <laughs> yeah yeah it's like just lay and read but um setting reading time as a valuable activity rather than just an incidental pastime is really important if you are intending to get through huge stacks of books and there are times in our life when there is not much reading time like I don't think Mm. I think there was a four-month stretch over the summer I yeah honestly don't think I read anything unless it was an audiobook it was just so crazy like up up in the dark running non-stop and then into bed at dark barely able to put my feet up on the bed you know Mm. so um I'm not saying that everybody has to make time to read I'm just saying if you want to read a lot and you can then you have to make the time intentional or yeah I agree I I found myself slipping last year and then I kind of said right something has to change here so I have to 
take something off my plate that I was doing before, which is usually something social media related and go, hang on, no, I'm going to stop that. Or also what I found helpful this year was to, to when um, Gable started school to say, right, after breakfast, as my breakfast is going, I'm going to read for half an hour every day. There you go. And some days I couldn't do it, but it, it really, um, it makes me feel better. Uh-huh. Being, being able to, to have the time to do that because, yes, because you're it's moving your me mind. forward and entertaining me. Yeah, yes. both, exactly. You have to feed your so, mind. And and yeah. even just the relaxing reads, like I'm reading a book that one of our patrons recommended to me, Karis um, recommended mm-hmm. um, to say nothing of the dog. And it's it's a British book and it's hilarious and it's just so enjoyable and fun and um of course, I'm also learning things as I'm reading it, but I'm just enjoying it and it's feeding my mind and and, and it's witty and clever and there's it's lots nice. of tons of historical allusions and jokes and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so it's enjoyable. So even if you're, if you have, it's like when somebody says, what do you have for a snack, Allison? And your snack doesn't have to be Doritos. If your snack is something that serves your body and nourishes your body, it's both your, your relaxing pleasure, but it's also you know, building you up. So mm-hmm. making all of our entire libraries that way is, it's the way to be. <laughs> you know, just as you were saying that, I can actually hear Rob upstairs reading to Gabriel. That's <laughs> I love kind it. of a weird, beautiful coincidence, it. isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, these these kids also chill. Did, blah, can't talk. Did you ever see <laughs> there was a, a political cartoon where there's two people like two adults sitting on a park bench and they each had a kid next to them and the adult one adult was on their phone and their child was like playing with some sort of little video game toy and the other adult had Mm. a book in their hand and their child was reading and the adult with the Mm. phone in their hand is saying how do you get your kids to read (laughs) (laughs) and yeah I kind of I feel that that's true in so many in so many things isn't it how do you get your kids to eat liver Mm. yeah yeah well that's what I mean so (laughs) <laughs> also he's hungry <laughs> so um there's there's definitely that are like last night after I made my book list and I got everything ready for this morning and then I went to bed and and I mm. the four-year-old climbs up into bed next to me and then she starts loading she put like three stacks of books in front of her and started reading <laughs> not really reading but reading and oh, so sweet. i said here do you want uh, my book light because i'm going to sleep and she's like yes please <laughs> and then she just sits there reading and reading and and it's it's wonderful to see them yes the book stacks sliding around the house can be annoying but um it's so exciting to see them always reading yeah. and bringing books in the car when we go anywhere and and just it's nice I don't know. but they do it because they see they see me read all the time yeah exactly they know i enjoy it so yeah you're anyway. passing that on it's beautiful <clears throat> allison i don't so, even know how long we've been talking because i haven't looked yeah, at the clock i was just about to say on that note i should probably go up and get some dinner <laughs> so i leave enough time for us to read this evening yes, i think you'd... we've got we've got to grind some grains in the in the grain grinder because i need to make a another oh, awesome. um, of my millet and sorghum breads tomorrow <clears throat> So I want to make sure there's enough time for us to have our books. Yeah, yeah, gotta get to that. We could finish there. (laughs) Well, Allison, you did not help me at all today. My book list only got longer. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to um, quit podcasting so I have time to read. (laughs) (laughs) No. Just kidding, just kidding. (laughs) I'll have to um, just 
you know, stop wasting so much time and get, get my reading done. I'm not a fast mm. reader, so I have to be very diligent about yeah, showing me up neither. to the reading time. Mm. All right. Well, All right so here's to, here's to a wonderful reading year for That's everyone right. listening. And do send Happy us. Happy New Year, um, everyone. Yeah, send us in your, um, what you'd like to read this year. Yeah, yeah, I want to see the list. What you to us. And yeah. um, here's to a, to a beautiful year of of sharing knowledge and learning together. And um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be really great, hopefully. I love it. Thank you, Alison. Have an awesome dinner. Mm. Thank you, Andrea. Ciao. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Bye.